This is Chapter 71 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 71. At four o'clock in the afternoon, we were winding down a mountain of dreary and desolate lava to the sea and closing our pleasant land journey. This lava is the accumulation of ages one torrent of fire after another has rolled down here in old times and built up the island structure higher and higher underneath it is honeycombed with caves it would be of no use to dig wells in such a place they would not hold water you would not find any for them to hold for that matter consequently the planters depend upon cisterns the last lava flow occurred here so long ago that there are none now living who witnessed it. In one place it enclosed and burned down a grove of coconut trees, and the holes in the lava where the trunks stood are still visible. Their sides retain the impression of the bark. The trees fell upon the burning river, and, becoming partly submerged, left in it the perfect counterpart of every knot and branch and leaf, and even nut for curiosity-seekers of a long distant day to gaze upon and wonder at. There were doubtless plenty of Kanaka sentinels on guard hereabouts at that time, but they did not leave casts of their figures in the lava as the Roman sentinels at Herculaneum and Pompeii did. It is a pity it is so, because such things are so interesting, and so it is. They probably went away. They went away early, perhaps. However, they had their merits. The Romans exhibited the higher pluck, but the Kanakas showed the sounder judgment. Shortly we came in sight of that spot whose history is so familiar to every schoolboy in the wide world, Kealakekua Bay, the place where Captain Cook, the great circumnavigator, was killed by the natives nearly a hundred years ago. The setting sun was flaming upon it, a summer shower was falling, and it was spanned by two magnificent rainbows. Two men who were in advance of us rode through one of these, and for a moment their garments shone with a more than regal splendor. Why did not Captain Cook have taste enough to call his great discovery the Rainbow Islands? These charming spectacles are present to you at every turn. They are common in all the islands. They are visible every day, and frequently at night also not the silvery bow we see once in an age in the States, by moonlight, but barred with all bright and beautiful colors, like the children of the sun and rain. I saw one of them a few nights ago. What the sailors call rain-dogs, little patches of rainbow, are often seen drifting about the heavens in these latitudes, like stained cathedral windows. Kealakekua Bay is a little curve like the last kink of a snail-shell winding deep into the land, seemingly not more than a mile wide from shore to shore. It is bounded on one side, where the murder was done, by a little flat plain, on which stands a coconut grove and some ruined houses. A steep wall of lava, a thousand feet high at the upper end, and three or four hundred at the lower, comes down from the mountain, and bounds the inner extremity of it. From this wall the place takes its name Kealakekua, which in the native tongue signifies the pathways of the gods. They say, and still believe, in spite of their liberal education in Christianity, 
that the great god Lono, who used to live upon the hillside, always travelled that causeway when urgent business connected with heavenly affairs called him down to the seashore in a hurry. As the red sun looked across the placid ocean through the tall, clean stems of the coconut trees, like a blooming whiskey bloat through the bars of a city prison, I went and stood in the edge of the water on the flat rock pressed by Captain Cook's feet when the blow was dealt which took away his life, and tried to picture in my mind the doomed man struggling in the midst of the multitude of exasperated savages, the men in the ship crowding to the vessel's side and gazing in anxious dismay toward the shore, the—but I discovered that I could not do it. It was growing dark, and the rain began to fall. We could see that the distant boomerang was helplessly becalmed at sea, and so I adjourned to the cheerless little box of a warehouse, and sat down to smoke and think, and wish the ship would make the land, for we had not eaten much for ten hours, and were viciously hungry. Plain, unvarnished history takes the romance out of Captain Cook's assassination, and renders a deliberate verdict of justifiable homicide. Wherever he went among the islands, he was cordially received and welcomed by the inhabitants, and his ships lavishly supplied with all manner of food. He returned these kindnesses with insult and ill-treatment. Perceiving that the people took him for the long-vanished and lamented god Lono, he encouraged them in the delusion for the sake of the limitless power it gave him. But during the famous disturbance at this spot, and while he and his comrades were surrounded by fifteen thousand maddened savages, he received a hurt and betrayed his earthly origin with a groan. It was his death-warrant. Instantly a shout went up, He groans! He is not a god! So they closed in upon him and dispatched him. His flesh was stripped from the bones and burned, except nine pounds of it, which were sent on board the ships. The heart was hung up in a native hut, where it was found and eaten by three children, who mistook it for the heart of a dog. One of these children grew to be a very old man, and died in Honolulu a few years ago. Some of Cook's bones were recovered and consigned to the deep by the officers of the ships. Small blame should attach to the natives for the killing of Cook. They treated him well. In return, he abused them. He and his men inflicted bodily injury upon many of them at different times, and killed at least three of them before they offered any proportionate retaliation. Near the shore we found Cook's monument, only a coconut stump, four feet high and about a foot in diameter at the butt. It had lava boulders piled around its base to hold it up and keep it in its place, and it was entirely sheathed over, from top to bottom, with rough, discolored sheets of copper, such as ships' bottoms are coppered with. Each sheet had a rude inscription scratched upon it, with a nail, apparently, and in every case the execution was wretched. Most of these merely recorded the visits of British naval commanders to the spot, but one of them bore this legend. Near this spot fell Captain James Cook, the distinguished navigator, who discovered these islands A.D. 1778. After Cook's murder, his second-in-command on board the ship opened fire upon the swarms of natives on the beach, and one of his cannonballs cut this coconut tree short off, and left this monumental stump standing. It looked sad and lonely enough to us out there in the rainy twilight. But there is no other monument to Captain Cook. 
True, up on the mountainside we had passed by a large enclosure like an ample hog-pen built of lava-blocks, which marks the spot where Cook's flesh was stripped from his bones and burned. But this is not properly a monument, since it was erected by the natives themselves, and less to do honor to the circumnavigator than for the sake of convenience in roasting him. A thing like the guide-board was elevated above this pen on a tall pole, and formerly there was an inscription upon it, describing the memorable occurrence that had there taken place. But the sun and the wind have long ago so defaced it as to render it illegible. Toward midnight a fine breeze sprang up, and the schooner soon worked herself into the bay and cast anchor. The boat came ashore for us, and in a little while the clouds and the rain were all gone. The moon was beaming tranquilly down on land and sea, and we two were stretched upon the deck sleeping the refreshing sleep and dreaming the happy dreams that are only vouchsafed to the weary and the innocent. End of chapter 71